You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Check Radio. Welcome back to Counterculture. I'm Marie and this morning I have got Ian Cummings with me and we are going to dive in and have a discussion around Christianity in the modern context, particularly with culture and maybe a little bit of politics and a few other things thrown in for good measure. Good morning, Ian. How are you? Oh, very good. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this interview, Marie. So tell us a little bit more about you. Okay. Well, um, my background, I was brought up in a it's a very a unionist um, home environment um, by my my dad. Actually, has become a solo dad. Um, my two brothers, I was the oldest of three, Christchurch, militantly unionist. My dad um, came out on what was called the ten quid boats in the fifties, and to arrive here and get a, have a better life from Glasgow. Bad stutter. Um, all I knew was that um, nationals sucked and uh, rich people were terrible. It was workers versus the rest. And sad to say, <clears throat> I'm now married to a dairy farmer, farmer's daughter, by the way, but I, I'm dare to say, sad to say, um, we didn't like farmers. We didn't like people with ski racks. Um, it was all envy, but pretty, very militant household. And my dad's aspiration for his three boys that we'd get a trade. And I escaped school at 15 and entered into a trade as a fitter and turner. I didn't really enjoy that much, although I I wanted to get out of school. I hated school, which is ironic because now I'm actually on the board of a school. (laughs) In fact, I'm the chair and I'm a trustee member of of a school, Christian school, Pukakaui. I finished my apprenticeship, and in those days, I think big days, um, I chased the money. I chased the bucks as a fitter, went to Marsden Point, the expansion. Actually, I'm still in the oil industry. I manage a business which operates oil company assets at Wirree. Look, during the, my time at Marsden Point, um, those were very bad, rough days. Muldoon, who all us Christchurch folk hated, and we used to well, not me, but I know folk who wanted to throw pies at him. I think he might have been the first Prime Minister that put barricades around in Christchurch. But it, to me, it'd be a waste of a good Stevie's pie. But at Marsden Point, I was I, I observed some very sad circumstances around the unions and just ridiculous. The sirens would go off, we'd all have to escape because of bomb threats. But it was just so aggressive. And in the end, Muldoon banned strikes. So I got a taste of that. And I sort of, that made me question things. You know, this didn't seem right. And I think that Um, was the, um, was was it the Auckland dock workers? Wasn't that the final straw that broke the camels back on those, banning those strikes from memory? It was... Well, my dad was a wharfie at Watersider. Well, you go all the way back to 1950, is it 51? Yeah. now, I'm not sure if that was. I, I believe the Boilermakers really broke the camel's back. Ah. Uh, the Boilermakers, um, Mungary Bridge and the Terrace, there was some steel mm. structures down there. And uh, now you won't really find a Boilermaker. They changed the fitter and welder. Um, no, but but during that, that period, my, this is my life-changing moment. Uh, my brother, my young brother, very, very intelligent. Me, I'm just average, but he was super intelligent, 100% in everything type guy, and he was always reading a book, which we thought was pretty sad. But he was uh, attending Canterbury University, and he had gone religious. I, I, got a, I got a call to say that he's gone religious. I actually got on an aeroplane. I was living in Auckland, so I actually got on an aeroplane, went down to see my younger brother because we were pretty close. Went to his student flat, which was just shocking conditions. <laughs> so, but went to his flat, and look, he he told me about 
Jesus. And the last thing I wanted to know, or even last thing, I didn't care anything for religion at all, because I brought up that way. But he told me about this Jesus. And it was very confrontational in, 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 inside. I didn't make out or let on, but by golly, what he was saying shocked me. Who was this Jesus? And the claims and whatnot. And I just couldn't get enough of um, asking questions of my brother about Jesus Christ. And I, was, I picked up a Bible, opened it, and read the first page, and I had to shut it because I thought it was rubbish. Um, but I kept going back to my brother and said, what's this about? It, it just latched on to me. And the long story short, over a couple of three years where I basically said, okay, God, if you're there, I really want to know. If you're there, I want to know. And and I made a commitment. I with, I think it was sincere. So I said, look, if you are real, then I'll give you my life. And, you know, and so I was quite serious about that. Well, look, over a couple of three years, I just had serious doubts. I'd look outside and I'd see evolution. I wouldn't see creation. So, no, it's just a nonsense. There can't be another dimension. But I was reading the claims of Christ. I was sharing with, um, I used to have apprentices. I was sharing with my apprentices. They were becoming Christians around me. So there's a whole lot of um, discussion around Christianity and, and, and in particular Jesus because I've got some problems with um, some of what represents Christianity. There was a verse in the Bible. It's in Hebrews, I think it's eleven six. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a reward of those who diligently seek him. I was hung up on that. I went and saw a pastor up at Wyo Road. Um, his name was Ross. And I told him, look, I think I want to believe that God exists, but I can't. And he prayed for me. And I can tell you what, Marie, after that time, things just started uh, snapping. And, go, and, and then one night I looked up at the sky in a dark sky and a verse that I knew came to me, which said, this Jesus whom you crucified has become both Lord and Christ. And I looked at those stars and I spoke that out and I just knew, I just knew he was Lord. It was a revelation for me. And so I became a Christian, full bore, um, with street preaching, I did the works. <laughs> Everyone thought I'd gone crazy, the family. Even my brother thought I'd wanted it over the top. But the, I... At that point, I joined Youth with a Mission and a short, minister, a short um, evangelistic type mission outfit. And they were going through a period where not only were, were you, you know, you get saved as an individual and, you know, go to heaven, you'd be saved and whatnot. But actually, uh, the kingdom of God was far greater than just saving souls. It actually included redeeming all of society. All areas, the arts, education, government, business, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, wow, this is a, and this was this was the kingdom of God, not just saving souls, but the kingdom of God. And as far as um, sin had gone and, and the rot had gone, so too can the salvation of Christ bring it and bring life back to those, those things. And I latched onto that. So much so that I got fairly excited at YOM. And, and um, after I left YOM, I said, look, I'm going to uni. I went to Auckland Uni to uh, find out, well, what is what makes things tick in, um, in the humanistic world, humanism world. So I embarked on a, a degree in history, or it was public studies, history, philosophy, etc. Yeah, I got a degree. Then I got asked, I was running out of money, and I um, got a job with an oil company. And I, that was in 1990, a long time ago. 
and I'm still with the oil companies. But along the way, I've got I've become very interested in government. And when I say government, as a Christian, you've got individual government, you've got uh, family government, church government, and then civil government. Unfortunately, when we think of government, we think of the beehive, and it's all-encompassing. Well, actually, that's not the way God had structured it. If you look at Romans 13, good gov- that's where good government is. Um, the state is a servant or a minister of God that is under God, God, under God's transcendent law. Each of those governments that have their own sphere can't encroach on the others. Unfortunately, what we have is we have civil government, which is which has basically taken over family government or it's been surrendered to central government, to the state. And the church has been subdued, although I don't believe as in Catholicism where the church and state should be one, of course. Uh, there were huge mistakes many centuries ago around that space. But so predicated on the fact that what's important for any society and good government of a nation is individual government. And Christians should know that. And that's when I got excited with ACT, when Roger Douglas and Derek Quigley got together and formed an association, Consumers and Taxpayers, in about 93, 94. I was in the young Nats at, the, at that time in Vincent Street. I remember saying to my colleagues, watching the fourth Labour government and saying to my colleagues, hey, aren't they doing what we say we should do? And it was just silence. And I knew I was in the wrong place. So along came Roger with ACT. And I got very excited. So I, I basically, in fact, I heard, went along and, and heard uh, Rodney Hyde give a speech and I thought, and my jaw dropped. I thought, wow, that guy can deliver a speech. Wow, it was so awesome. And and just freedom, choice, personal responsibility. Summed mm. it up and I thought, as a Christian, absolutely. I know where I'm, this is my home. Mm. See, I'm I'm not a Christian, but I do have very strong libertarian leanings, and you've described a lot of those very yes. strong libertarian leanings. So, because a lot of libertarians are quite devout atheists. Yes, well, so, I, so I, I so, call myself a Christian libertarian. Now that might right. confuse folk, but I'll. But <laughs> in fact, I have, and many times, and um, there are some of us around. But yeah, I'm quite happy to call myself a Christian libertarian with a capital C, though, mm. and a small L, and do no harm. Yeah, right at the top. And sure, there are atheists, there are Christians, non-Christians, there are libertarian. I value libertarianism. So one of the reasons I wanted to chat to you today is to actually look at both sides of those that coin and the current cultural environment that we're living in, which has its roots actually in your background, I mean, your father's Glaswegian background, which is very much in the unionist movement, which predicates back into socialism and if you go a bit further back into Marxism and they've gone and flipped the idea of class so as you said as a kid in Christchurch looking at people with roof racks and skis and having (laughs) hating all of those sorts of things and actually replacing that with power struggles and identity groups and hierarchies just terrible envy by the way when I say hate just terrible envy terrible envy yep fair enough and how do you then now look because it's a more increasing secular society today than I think it's ever been I mean this country I don't know when the moment would have been for me growing up because I grew up in a secular household so faith wasn't a central tenant but in those days that was we were part of the minority 
most houses still had a faith-based core, and in most cases, that was Christianity. In the current secular society, why, where do you think modern Christianity is now misunderstood? I, I'm seeing as someone looking from the outside looking in that people in the current woke culture are very disparaging against Christianity, and I don't really understand why. It's interesting that you thought that Christianity was pretty common. I, I certainly wasn't brought up, and I didn't see any Christianity. The, what I saw was uh, rugby racing and beer type culture because they fear it. And, and look, I'm going to tell you that it's a spiritual, it is a spiritual thing. There, there is another dimension which you and I can't see, just like a fish pops itself out of the water, looks up, think, whoa, it's a different world, goes back sees his other fish may say, hey, there's another world out there. Oh, rubbish. It's a bit like that. So for me, it's a spiritual battle in that yeah, people can't understand why the Bible should be relevant. They think it's an old, archaic book. God doesn't exist. They look to Christianity as being archaic and yeah, rather sad, I suppose. But spiritually, it's the enemy. You look at the communist nations, look at Soviet Union and whatnot. They were scared of the Bible. It was banned. China, they still banned Bibles. Why? It doesn't make any sense in that, except to say that it's a spiritual thing. And that's where the truth is. Fortunately, um, some people pick up a Bible and swear on it because they know that's the truth. So there's more, I think it's more of a fear of it. And it means that um, if what's in there is imposed on them, that is the law of God, you know, then they won't be able to carry on their hedonistic sinning ways. They don't want someone to tell them what to do. Just like um, the Jews with Jesus said, we will not have that man to rule over us. It's so true. We don't want that man to rule over us. We don't want God to rule over us. We want to have it our way and live our lives our ways. The hedonism, I think, is certainly something that we are seeing on steroids with the current cultural climate the concept of boundaries like as i said my family was secular but we grew up with traditions that were steeped originally in the church so you'd be nice to you people and people would be nice in return yeah. yeah that's it thank you and you don't um you know thou that shall not steal and you shouldn't cover your your neighbor's wife and all of those sorts of principles that mm. are i think important in a civil society so even if you, as using your analogy as the fish, you haven't, you've popped your head above the water and you've not quite decided to dive into that world out there, there is still actually a certain level of civility. And modern Western culture was derived out of the Enlightenment, which again had a Christian foundation. So even though you may be, say, a libertarian with a capital L, which I'm not no, saying no. I am, but a, cap a libertarian yeah. with a capital L, there is still that core of individuality and governance and self-responsibility, which all had its foundations in Christianity. Mm. Well, if, if, to go right back, and I'll, I'll, to go right back to the garden, it's always been a conflict and it's about sovereignty. So the sovereignty of man is the sovereignty of God. When, a, when the serpent said to Eve, has God said? So therefore questioning God. Right, and it goes right back to that for us as a Christian or Christians to understand that. So it's a, a sovereignty issue all the way. And we've still got a sovereignty issue. All through history, the sovereignty issue. If you look at um, 
12.15 would we have that Magna Carta, there's a sovereignty issue. It was around the church versus divine rights, basically. And in fact, I think it was the first clause talks about that it was necessary for the freedom of the church. Um, and from the Magna Carta, we get you know, individual freedom. And English common law. Yeah, sure. Um, but, but the battle was and still is around sovereignty, the sovereignty of God versus the sovereignty of man. And the sovereignty of God versus the sovereignty of man, it's, it's a battle of history. And I'm just reflecting on the beehive, Parliament calls itself sovereign. And, and so as it, with the Christian, though, the sovereignty of God trumps all. God's transcendent law trumps all. So Parliament and all laws should come under God's law. And that's where the battle is. We do, well, people do not want to submit to God's law. End of story. So they create, if you like, a God on earth being the state. And so the state has exalted itself above God's law and basically anything goes. And we're seeing some crazy, well, I consider crazy stuff going on around us, which you'd never thought any logical person would buy into, but it's happening. It's, it just seems absolute nonsense because of the, the compass has gone, is spinning. One of the things I notice with people that follow what cultural or neo-Marxism is there tends to be a real, almost spiritual replacement. The people that are really deeply steeped in the ideology, it's replaced what is a God-shaped hole in their heart and, it, and they follow it as fervently as any traditional religion. Do you see that? I do. Um, look, if someone had asked me to join the Communist Party in my early days, I probably would have because it had a, it's a worldview which basically looks seems to you know looks to rescue mankind. It's almost got its end times, you know, the rise of the proletariat and everything falls to pieces. Now the ashes, you know, comes the real man and whatnot. So yeah, I, I I see that, but it's still humanistic and it makes man the measure of all things. Unfortunately, whilst Marxism or communism seems like a great idea, and I thought I used to think it was, unfortunately, there's some, one thing that gets in the way, and that's human nature. Uh, and the Bible's got a, um, a very small word that, uh, called sin. So we've got, we're born not innately good, but with a sinful nature. In fact, I, I remember, I recall at uni, one of the first things I sat there, looked down at someone on the stage there, and he had the audacity to say that. Um, Children are born innately good, and that's how what they base the education system on. There are there are no absolutes and some daft things like that. But um, I remember looking around, thinking, "Am I the only one that thinks that's a bit odd?" They sincerely believe it. So everything's based on the fact that it's all this trust in the human species. Works. Unfortunately, as a Christian, I know we know that human species is flawed flawed with sin and you can't you train a child not to be naughty you train a child to be good and god's got a solution for that sinful nature he basically has the solution is to replace a heart of stone with a new heart and put in our hearts and minds a desire a, a love and a desire for his word and his truth and his law to not steal not commit adultery etc etc and not covered. If you don't have that, then what, what we do have is a state which says 
which is based on pretty much, or well, the state is pretty much based on, it believes that is a higher claim over everyone's lives and property. That, that's what the state actually believes. And, and unfortunately, I think most of the politicians sincerely believe that. And as a libertarian, you, you'll understand that that's, that's a problem. The state thinks it's got a higher claim over my life, your life, everyone's property. Anything goes, basically. And so when the Bible says you shall not steal, the, the state will say you shall not steal except by majority vote. Well, that's immoral. Mm. But most people think that that's a good thing. It's flawed. Indeed. Yeah. So within the Christian model, we have uh, spirituality, Jesus Christ and God at the top. Then down from that, obviously, is the sanctity of the family. I want to get your thoughts around how families are under attack and the, the true nature of cohesive families are under attack and the role that the state is playing in that in terms of replacing themselves, as you said, as sovereign within their lives. Because I see with the disintegration of a number of families that a lot of the cultural and social problems stem out from that. And often the families that have the strongest cohesion as a societal unit are those that have faith at their core. What are your thoughts around that? Mm. Um, well, family's definitely under attack. Well, not so much under attack, it's, um, it's been subdued. Look, God, God's made it very clear that the spheres I've talked about, first, you've got to have individual government, but there's family government. And, and the prime responsibility of the family or the responsibility, the family is responsible for one, the education of their children and the welfare of the family unit. And so what we have is the government, and then that includes discipline, et cetera, but, and welfare. And what we have is the state has taken over those functions. So welfare and education is um, areas of the state. So the state is the provider. Whereas before 1930s New Zealand, before savagery came along, there were societies, Christian societies, other societies, and then the welfare space, I'll talk about the welfare space, um, it was around charity. And mm. now we have state welfare, which as I said to you before, um, how, how can you love your neighbour when you've got your hand in their pocket, in their back pocket, on their wallet? Or how, how can you love your neighbour um, when you're using, when you're, voting a party and that will take your neighbor's earnings and distribute it maybe to you or to others. Basically taken over welfare, which is the family's duty. And then so it made family or made the, the family dependent on the state. Dependent on the state. In fact, all the individuals within the family become dependents. Rather than charity, we've got welfare. So I remember outside of a conference um, having a discussion, an argument actually with a Greens person, um, and I said, look, I believe in welfare, but not state welfare. I believe in charity. Voluntary giving is a far more nobler thing than using the state to forcibly take other people's earnings. So, yeah, so that the state has taken over the family government, even Christians as well, I'm, I'm sorry to say. Most Christians have bought into that as well, whereas someone is in need, they'll look to the state. The state will provide for them. Once you, rather than God being your provider, they look to the state. The church 
has the opportunity to look after those individuals with regard to welfare. But they don't. They don't need to, and people just trot off to the state. I, I, I remember a fellow telling me, wouldn't it be great if all the Christians decided, right, we're not going to uh, take money from the state, from our neighbours, basically. We're all going to go along to whatever office and say, take me off the welfare, and they say, why? Well, my church is going to provide for me. Um, where, where they come from, look after themselves, the church is going to. Now imagine if all the Christians in this nation did that, what a difference that would be. When, when you're out there on the hustings, as I have been many times, trying to get people, even Christians, to reject the state welfare and look to charity, it's very, very difficult. You don't win many votes in that space. Mm. And the same too with, um, with education. I'm, I'm, I'm involved with um, a Christian school. Um, I, I very much think that um, homeschooling is a great option and a Christian education or a Christian school is a, another good option if you can afford it. The state has no business being involved with not just welfare, but also education. That's not their role of the state. Romans 13 points out what the role of the state is and it's basically to um, punish evil. It's not to create a welfare state. It's not to create schools etc etc let's have a look at schooling charter schools were wonderful there was saw an increase in faith-based schools at that time because it allowed schools to be founded around a central tenant and actually look after their own community and they have wonderful communities around those schools with the dissolving of charter schools how has that affected faith-based schools in that space um, it would have. Charter schools are a, are a good thing, in my view, but they're not the best thing. And I'll tell you why I've got that view. I think that's because the funding of those charter schools comes from the state, and therein is a problem. Why should I, or why should someone that doesn't have any, doesn't have any children or doesn't agree with whatever education, but still has to pay the state a certain amount of tax so I have a, an issue with that. But having said that, if you look at things, a charter, a charter schooling was a great idea. And I understand the states, it's, um, it's still going strong. I think even Obama enjoyed it. So if, to have the Labor government come along and just basically sweep it away was just outrageous. I'm not actually aware of any Christian charter schools, I'm sorry, Marie. So how did the school, so like you, I mean, you're on the head of a, with a school mm. and the, with the curriculum now, you have things such as uh, Māori mythology taught as part of the science curriculum, as an example. How do you navigate that in a faith-based environment? If you're a state integrated school and the school I'm with is not state integrated, it's independent. So it's not funded by the state. The state integrated school is funded by the state, and so there'd have to be a, whoever pays the pipe or calls the tune. <laughs> that's just, that's not in the Bible, but <laughs> who calls the pipe, pays the tune, uh, pays the pipe, calls the tune. So there's a point where um, the state would be able to push and enforce things that might not be agreeable to the state integrated school, and, and um, there was a recent case up north, wasn't there, Kerry Kerry, I think, um, where a school couldn't tolerate um, a certain issue and decided to basically shut the school. Now, 
there might have been more going on with that school, but it's but that was their die in the ditch moment. But the school I'm involved with, the state doesn't have you can't break the law, of course, but no. the state yeah, the state isn't enforcing that into our school at this point. Mm. Um why? Because I don't think it can. Well, where does it sit? Like, as an independent school, where do you sit in regards to national standards? There must be certain benchmarks that you have to attain or adhere to in order to work within the educational framework. Well, you can you can choose a curriculum, and, and we use Cambridge. Right. Um, so yeah, it's I don't have a problem with what National are proposing, um, but yeah, we use Cambridge. Um, we don't use NCEA. There are other schools using Cambridge, so you've already got that in place. Mm. Um, yes, it's not imposed. It wouldn't be a problem. Um, parents need to know where the child's at, want the parents to know where their child's at. Some of us, I mean, I wasn't blessed academically. My, my brother was, but um, you, you can't improve something that you don't measure. You've, you've got to measure. And so Cambridge actually is a very tough curriculum, but it's, very, it's an excellent curriculum in that it, it gears children up if they want to go to university. I think the first year of university, they just froze, really. In terms of the modern church, COVID, I felt, was really isolating for a lot of individuals, a lot of people, but especially a lot of people involved in the church, being separated from their community and their core for worship. How did what's, What did you see during that time, particularly during the lockdowns? I've got to say, I was fairly disappointed with, um, with most with most of it, um, very disappointed in that for individual Christians, it seemed sad to say, all, it seemed to be that all it took was someone to whisper in your, into an individual's ear, you, you know, if you don't take this shot, you're going to lose your job. And many capitulated, many went to that, weren't willing to say no. So I was quite disappointed with the um, position of many Christians. And I've got to say, churches um, willing to submit to the, the state in that area. But there was decisions they made. Uh, and going online is not, <laughs> is not quite church, is it? Church is getting together and being taught and engaging and basically, you know, being able to touch someone. And we lost all of that. It's so easily. And so quickly, I think we lost our minds. In fact, I think we lost our nerve with the state. How dare the state enforce something like that on the church, let alone the individual? And when you think back, or if you read back into First Church, um, a, little, a lot more severe, of course, um, if you didn't sprinkle something, to say that Caesar, sprinkle some incense into a bowl or something and say that Caesar was Lord, you know, you could go to the lions, um, to the beasts. Um, and, and there are Christians who refused that and lost their lives. And then you look at us like, a couple of thousand years later, really saddened me that we're so easily subdued by the state and not willing to pay the, the cost. I heard um, some churches talk about Romans 13 and that they use Romans 13 um, where it says to obey the government. And they just say, well, we must obey the state. Well, mm. that's just not so. Historically, um, there are people like Sammy Rutherford, Lex, who wrote a book called Lex Rex, 16th century, uh, 1600 something or other. 
which shows that, well, actually, there's some times where you mustn't obey the state. In fact, there are quite a few times in the Bible where people are championed for refusing to obey the state. But here we were, so willing and ready to not just do that, but, you know, there are some people dobbing in their neighbours. Mm. It just seemed incredible. So I found it a very uh, sad time. I mean, I was at a funeral this morning and I was reflecting on just a couple of years ago, I couldn't even go to a funeral. And here we were in a funeral. I was in a funeral this morning, hundreds of people there. And the state took that away where people weren't able to mourn properly. Yeah. You know, it's just it's diabolical what we all went through. And for the church, there's some, there's some people, some pastors speaking out, dear Brian, Tamaki, good on them pretty radical, but but there were some that spoke out and were willing to even get arrested for it, you know, to uh, protect our freedoms. And that's what I found really interesting because he was almost a lone voice in that space in terms of theological leadership. I mean, you didn't see uh, any, any of the traditional churches. In fact, from my understanding, many of those wholeheartedly went along with a lot of the COVID measures. You know, why would you do that, particularly in that environment? It just showed you, as you said, the effect of the state over the church. When you look at their history and where they are now, it's just chalk and cheese, really. They do a wonderful, wonderful work out there. But also, though, the first, one of the first ones, the leadership anyway, I'm always asking for the state to do more or insisting that the state increase this, that, the next thing. Um, I find that rather sad. Was that our, was that the church's die in the ditch moment? Probably not. But I'll tell you what, though, what, what it means is if there was a test, we're going to be put to death for refusing. We've, we've come up with a big fail. We really have, in my view. I, I, I am involved with one ch a church that um, did actually put a letter to, together and um, send it off to their MPs and whatnot protesting. Um, but that's as far as that went. There are others like Brian Tamaki who really pushed the boundaries. And I, I actually um, thought that was great. Of course, the media love to ridicule Brian. Uh, <laughs> I don't know the man personally, but um, he did look, seem like he was out there alone. I know there's another fellow in Christchurch who was pretty outspoken, a Baptist minister. Um, but there are few, they seem to be few and far between. And so we were alien, yeah, and being away from the church community, corporate worship and whatnot, we were being we were alienated. And, and the state did a wonderful job of doing that. Um, very, very sad. And now churches are finding is the numbers have um, changed somewhat, and that people it's quite easy just to stay at home and go online, or folk have moved on to other churches. So um yeah. There could be some struggling going on out there amongst the churches, but that corporate worship and being able to break the bread and whatnot together was basically taken away by the state. Beggars belief that that could happen, but it did. Mm. And they can do it again. This is the scary thing. It hasn't gone away. They could do it again. One of the things that I know with Christians, and many that I know, is that they have they tend to be glass half filled as opposed to glass half empty. So 
where do you believe in order to fill up a cup for someone like me, an old agnostic like me, what is something in terms of that you think would be quite positive looking forward for people in terms of filling their cup and well, knowing that there could be something better out there and, and wanting to affect change, how they can affect change and what you think the church's role in that change is going to be? Okay, that's a good question. Um... As far as hope goes, um, every Christian has hope. <clears throat> it's, it's never hopeless because if God is sovereign, if Jesus really is Lord of Lords then and sovereign, then everything is in his hands and all circumstances are under his control. And we can take um, solace in that. But that doesn't mean to sit around waiting, staying holy to get to heaven. Things are pretty tough, and things are going to get really tough financially for many, many folk. But what I would say for, to Christians is that um, we've really got to recognise that the state is not our friend. The state actually is, well, has um, taken upon itself to be God on earth, basically. The state is not our friend. The state never has been our friend. The state is actually has taken over individual rights, church, family, and it must be subdued. And so I think New Zealand being a small country, there's only 5 million of us, we could turn this around. There are plenty of, not just Christians, but plenty of individuals who have had a guts full of national labour, being status, birds, wings of the same bird. No matter, no matter which one you vote for, things just carry on uh, down the socialist track, basically. National may be a bit slower than Labour, but still going that same direction. But we Christians, we, we've got the answers. We've got the answer to welfare. It's called charity. We've got the answer to education. The, the state has no business being education because it can't do a good job. It does a lousy job. Politics and education don't mix. And, and the state does a lousy job at everything. Just look at our roads. Look, There's so much whinging and whining going on recognising the government's hopeless and just changing the government with another lot is not going to, in my view, it's not going to make any difference. We have got answers. The Bible has got the answers. We can maintain um, optimism that we can turn this around. But one thing we've got to do is shrink the size of the state. It must be reduced. It must be reduced. And so my call on everyone is to recognise that the state that one is is not your friend and it must be reduced. And so, yeah, I, I, I remain optimistic that that can be done, particularly New Zealand. If, if you're in the States with 300 million, that's a pretty tough call. But here in New Zealand, only 5 million, um, we can turn this country around. We really can. Mm. No, I certainly believe we can do that. And I mean, every great journey, as they say, starts with a single step. Well, mm. Anne, thank you very, very much for coming and talking to me about this, because it's interesting to to get that view, the Christian view. As I said, it, a lot of these views have been suppressed in the media or painted with a negative light. And I think if we're all to get on together, we need to make sure that we can have conversations like Christian with non-Christian and all work together under the same understanding. And as you said, there is hope out there. And mm. and if we unite together to, to work together as one group, we can actually affect, I think, really positive change. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Marie. No, thank you very much for having us.
You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky. Reality Check Radio.